All right, yes. Yeah. So hello, everybody. Welcome. Come on in. Let us know where you're coming from tonight. If you're new, let us know. Say yes in the comments. We'd love to hear how many new people we've got on the call tonight. Here we go. New Plymouth, Auckland, Paiora, Lockdown City. <laughs> it's getting a bit like a Groundhog Day around here. Oh, oh wow. Already up to nearly 1,500 of you. That's amazing. Awesome. Well, thank you, everyone. Welcome and thanks for coming along. And tonight we've got our special guest, Dr. Alison Goodwin, with us. Come, she's come back on the show to go have a really interesting talk tonight about some of the myths of COVID. So we'll just let a few more people come in and um, we'll we'll get started. It's going to be a bit of a nerdy session tonight. I look forward oh, to things. Not too nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, all the data and the, you know, the research and finding out where where the facts come from. Well, and just a different a different point of view, I guess, than what you're hearing in the mainstream media. Yes, yeah. All right, Alison, would you like to um, perhaps you could introduce yourself and just uh, let us know, um, perhaps a disclaimer as well before we kick off. Yeah, okay. Right. Okay. So, good day, everyone. This is a little bit weird for me speaking to a, <laughs> speaking to a screen and not sure who's who's out there. But um, so I'm Alison Goodwin. I'm um, well, I guess first and foremost, I'm a mum. I'm a mum first, a mum of four, and I'm also a doctor. I'm a GP, and I've been a, uh, been a doctor for over 25 years and a GP uh, for the last 10 or 11. Um, and I guess I've had a different view of this whole pandemic right from the start. Uh, some of you will have heard me speak before and know a bit of the background, but those who haven't heard me, uh, that's my background. I've just felt that we've been, uh, well, we could have been on a different path from the start of the pandemic, uh, and there were things that were missing um that you know if it was about health that we could have and should have been talking about um and so i guess i'm here tonight um i'm not speaking on behalf of anybody but myself i'm not speaking on behalf of my workplace or any organization uh, i'm just speaking as me um and just putting a different point of view out there and just those myths that, you know, I don't want to debunk them. I want to discuss those myths that, uh, so it's re referring to the article that was in, uh, well, it was East in the Herald and maybe in um, some of the other papers uh, as well, just the 10 myths. Um, and I think, well, there's a bit more to those than meets the eye. You know, they need a discussion. It's not black and white. So I thought, um, well, I've just, it's been rubbing me up the wrong way. So I thought, right, I need to speak about this and say something and just, you know, talk about it. And I, I don't have all the answers. Um, I want to yeah, put a different point of view out there, but I'm equally happy to hear if people have got other um, opinions. And, you know, that's where I think we get the best answers if we have a discussion with a, with a whole variety of people from, coming from different angles. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I guess that's my background uh, there. I think this is it. Yeah, yeah, and so tonight it's yeah. it's just an educational um, session, and it's so it's not to be taken as medical or legal advice or anything like yeah. that. We would suggest if you have specific questions that you address them with your uh, own medical doctor or your lawyer, if whatever is the situation for you. So I think before we just start, I will. I've got a bunch of things here that I've told I've got to got to say. So. Um, uh, there's a few just housekeeping things. The industry groups, um, thank you to all of the people who have signed up for those already. There's uh, well over a thousand of you in there. Uh, we have, I've sent out an email today. So if you haven't seen it, please go and have a look to all of the people that have signed up. 
basically saying with all the outages that we've had with Facebook and Signal and just the unstable kind of nature of these other platforms, we've decided to go for one on our own platform. So we're installing our own social media um, program or, or platform on our, on our server. And that's happening right now. So we're, it's taking a little bit longer than what we were initially anticipating, but hang in there, it should be ready to go within the next day or so. Um, and teachers in particular, we, you guys are going to be the first ones that we will let into this program because we understand the pressure that you're all under right now. So we will be getting in touch with you about some other resources as well. Um, next week, we've got an employment law webinar on Tuesday. So if that affects you and you'd like to keep across what's going on in that space, please watch out for an email on that. And we are preparing these submissions for the COVID-19 Public Health Amendment Bill. There's been a lot of, uh, I've, said, I've been emailed myself and messaged about a million times that submissions um, about this new law that's changing, that's actually just really an extension of what was already existing. And we are going to be um, putting in our submission tomorrow. And we will also have a template on our site so that people can go to the site a little bit like the hate speech ones and write your own copy and paste what you would like to put in your submission and send it off. So trying to make it a little bit easier for people so that everyone can have their say. Uh, we've also got some new template letters getting loaded up to the website on PCR testing for kids, MIQ and the workplace, as well as a general re um, request for contact tracing kids letters for schools to do with vaccines and masks and some employment letters re regarding bullying and personal grievances so there's we're we are sort of feet are going like that at the moment trying to get <laughs> underneath the water trying to get all of this done and um, we'll be spending some time probably later tonight and tomorrow loading those all onto the website so that's out of the way we can kick off with our um with our presentation and we're going to chat through it and we've both got slides so we'll be um, interrupting each other to, to show you different things to do with the references and things like that. I'm going to turn off the chat now so that you're just talking to Alison and I and we'll turn it back on at the end. So here we go. Okay, Alison. Right, oh goodness. So yes, you have to, I mean, I'm apologizing in advance of these technical issues because that's not my area of forte is doing all this <laughs> electronic stuff. Um, but now, so also just, I didn't say uh, part of why I'm here, I guess, uh, look, uh, it's not the sort of place that I would usually inhabit is in front of a screen speaking to lots of people, but um, look, my, my conscience is making me speak uh, and making me be here. And I'm here, I guess, uh, because of the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. Um, and I'm trying, it feels like there's an avalanche against me and my colleagues that are on my side, but we're, we're trying to defend your rights uh, to fully informed consent and your rights uh, to decline medical treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, that's why I'm here. I just feel compelled to be here and, um, and, and speak. So we're also um, very grateful for those of you that are doing that, Alison. It's, it's a big deal for us. Us yeah, well, yes, <laughs> I, and that's what keeps me going. A number of people come up to me and say, thank you so much. Thank you so much. So I feel obliged to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we know the feeling. Good. Can you see okay. my slides? I can see your slides, can yes. See, right, okay. So that was the first one, the introduction. Uh, right. And then disclosures, conflicts of interest. So, uh, yes, this is important. I have to say I'm um, not funded by anybody. Nobody's paying me to be here. <laughs> 
so it's just me. So I think it's important when you're listening to all the different um, people that are advising you what to do and how to do it, you know, who's funding them, what's behind them. Uh, do they have any conflicts of interest? So I guess my main conflict of interest is that I'm passionate about health, health and well-being. Um, uh, but yes, nobody's paying me to, <laughs> to, to do this. Um, Unlike some of the people uh, that we know of. Yes, yes well, that's um, right. I mean, when you look at actually who's um, speaking to us, uh, you know, and, and that's important actually, is a lot of them are um, in universities, uh, funded by the universities, um, but they're not actually seeing real patients. So um, I'm a GP. I mean, I work part time. I don't see hundreds of patients, but I'm seeing patients on the ground. Uh, whereas, you know, Michael Baker, Ashley Bloomfield, Aisha Beryl, um, Nick Wilson, Sean Hendy, Susie Wiles, those people there, you know, they've all got qualifications. They've all got skills. I think they've all got important skills, but they're not actually talking to patients on the ground, hearing the stories uh, that GPs and other um, clinical doctors are hearing. Uh, so we do have two GPs um, that are sort of there advising the government in their uh, other roles, the roles as well as GPs, Dr. Nikki Turner and Dr. Brian Betty. Um, but yes, yeah, so I'll, I'll, have a, uh, I'll show you uh, what I have dug up on some of these people. Hang on a minute. Uh, so here we have the Immunisation Advisory Centre, and this is their funding. Now, if you've heard, if you've paid attention to some of these people that are leading uh, this this uh, organization, they will say that they are, they're not funded by um, Pharma, but when you come to their own document that is their sponsorship and funding sources, here you have a whole lot of um, uh, money that's come through to them for various grants over the last, gosh, I don't know, 10 or so years, I gather. And on the side there, I'm not sure if you can see that, that tells you what kind of level of funding that they've had in the thousands. So. Uh, that's just a quick one for them. And we've also got uh, Mr. Dr. Brian Betty, who is the, he's the director, isn't he, of the medical, uh, the College of GPs? Yes, yes. As well as a um, deputy, um, what was he, he's a deputy director of Pharmac. And so, you know, this oh, is he was, I think. I'm not sure. He was? No, oh, I don't know if he still is. Maybe he still is. Uh, or maybe it hasn't been updated taken time out working as all right maybe it was big but but however he he has he's not exactly um independent is he if he's got those kind of funding backgrounds and there's a little if you'd like to go and have a look this is actually i forget to say all those of you that have um signed up should have the um reference list for tonight so that you can go and have a look at all of these references yes or i don't not, know that those these were, ones, well, but you, did, did you add those but the other ones all right yeah. No, I haven't added these, but people can look here, I suppose. This is on the New Zealand Doctors SOS website. And I think that that's, that's that for this one. So you might want to pop back to your, your screen now. Right, okay. Yeah. Right, so the myth number one. So I was just going to go through the myths. Um, so people were saying they could see, like most of the chat said they could see us and could um, see yeah, the slides. Okay. So hopefully well, that's working all right. Uh, so I just was going to go through the myths as they were in the paper. Um, so I guess this one is probably quite a big one and will affect um, a lot of people. Um, that, so the, the myth was that no vaccine-related hospitalizations aren't being hushed up. 
so, you know, I think that's where it's important that we're hearing from doctors on the ground that are actually talking to the patients uh, rather than people that are removed from the, uh, the whole process. Um, so it, it actually says on the MedSafe website, um, and well, maybe we won't go there right at the minute, but it does say that only 5% of all reactions are reported. So mm -hmm. there's already quite a lot of um, reactions reported on the uh, MedSafe website, which we'll look at in a tick. Um, oh, actually, maybe, oh, no, it's possibly worth running through that. Um, okay. That page, you want with, um, looking at it so that people who haven't looked at that web page can actually just look at it and see what, what's being reported. So this is a 5%. However, it is estimated that only 5% of all reactions are reported, so there is still room for improvement. So that was written in uh, 2001, that web page. Um, but presumably with the scrutiny that MedSafe's under, they would have updated it if it was different. And I can't imagine that it would be different. Uh, and that's yeah. consistent with studies out of America showing between one and 10% mm. um, of adverse reactions are reported. And I guess there's various reasons um, you know, for that. Why, why wouldn't things be reported? Well, first of all, somebody's got to be unwell enough that they seek medical attention then they've got to connect with what was going on with the vaccine. Uh, then the doctor or medical professional that's, um, that they're consulting with has to agree that yes, the vaccine's related. Uh, and then they have to know that there's a reporting system to report it to. Um, and then they've got to have the time and the energy to actually fill out the report. So, you know, that's at least five steps where something could stop things being reported. Uh, and the feedback, uh, I mean, I've done one or two reports and they are lengthy, they're, they're difficult, you need a lot of information, they take at least 15 or 20 minutes, which is the length of one GP consultation, and nobody's paying you to fill out those yes. reports. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's not much incentive to fill them out if you did think, well, gosh, this is a reaction, uh, I'm going to fill out a report, you know, when are you going to do it? Um, but the feedback that, that um, not me specifically, but my other medical colleagues that are, um, you know, aware that vaccines might cause problems, uh, say, you know, we, or, and the doctor's group are receiving a number of people saying, well, I, I told my doctor, or I asked the doctor, could it be related to the vaccine? Oh, no, it's a coincidence. And that seems mm, to be a, a super, com super common uh, comment that, no, it's not related to the vaccine. So I just thought... Um, Perhaps if we look at the um, your other uh, tab there earlier with, you know, which shows the safety yeah. reports and then. Um, this one we can. So just... this is this is the latest CALM report. Uh, well, the MedSafe report that's come up today or yesterday. Well, yesterday sorry. Yeah, they come out on a Wednesday. So it's safety report number 29 uh, up till sort of late September, 18th of September. Uh, so the purple box is there. That shows where these adverse... So these are the ones that have been reported. So already there's 757 serious reports. Uh, so, and mm. then if we go down to that bottom um, chart of what they those serious reports are. So, I mean, that's the list of serious reports there. And you can see uh, there's 67 cases of Bell's palsy. Um, 123 cases of herpes zoster, which is shingles, 70 cases of hemorrhage, that's bleeding, uh, deep vein thrombosis, 46, myocarditis and pericarditis, there's 97 cases of that, you know, and some of those will be young people and, and children, and those mm. people, you know, well, they're serious reports, so the lives of these people are potentially not going to be the same again, 
Uh, and, you know, I'm just wondering, well, when, when does it become too much? Like we've had, what, 20-something people die from COVID, and now we've got, what was it, 700 and... 757 yeah. of these reports here, uh, you know, and those are the reported ones. What if this is only 5%? Then you've got to multiply that by 20. And, you know, the people on the ground collating the citizens' database, you know, would probably say, well, that is, that is the case. Um, now, what was that? Yeah, and we're hearing a lot from um, nurses and people within the industry itself who are saying that they're being stopped from talking mm. about it and from... Right reporting and you know so it's being hushed up and you know we're not making this up people come yeah. to us and they're really disturbed about what's happening in their workplaces you know it, it's so it's got to be I think it has got to be a lot bigger than what we're seeing on this chart here yes that, well that's right I mean some of the things that you know and there's some unusual things um being reported and being seen uh flares of inflammatory bowel disease uh, mm. quite a bit of shingles but quite a bit of unusual numbness like numbness on one side of the face or numbness on one side of the body uh, certainly strokes heart attacks and previously fit and healthy people sudden deaths in people um, that you know I mean if you're an elderly person uh, you know if you're an elderly person in a rest home and you die suddenly well you know I'm not saying it's caused by the vaccine but it could be but I mean who's going to investigate it I can't imagine you know, there's already 68 deaths reported, uh, and they're not going to do post-mortems on all of those. There's already a, a shortage of um, shortage of pathologists to do that sort of work. Mm. Um, and yeah, I, it's difficult to know exactly how it's all being, you know, what how it's being done, how it's being checked out, how it's being um, uh, monitored. Was it monitored? Yeah, I mean, we've heard from quite a number of people. If I were to go back, thinking of uh, people saying that their elderly parents had had received the jab and had died not long after. You know, you would think that any kind of um, post-marketing surveillance should be yes. capturing any death that is happening, especially within a two or three week window. Yes, yeah, yeah. Well, that's right. If we were doing really thorough, robust safety monitoring data, we would be um, making note of and studying and researching every death that has occurred in every person who's been vaccinated uh, in New Zealand. Um, but the thing is that, that like when I, I spoke to Calm uh, earlier in the year and they said they normally would get three to 4,000 reports in a, in a 12 month period. Um, and, but now, I mean, we've got what, seven or eight months into this vaccine program, there's 18,000 reports or was there 20,000 reports there? Yeah, um, anyway, there, there's there's vast numbers of total reports in there. So what is that? Twenty thousand yeah. five hundred eighty-four total reports. So I mean, if three to four is the normal amount, then that's a significant amount more. So how can they all possibly be thoroughly investigated unless they've you know quadrupled the staff of CAM to to yeah. um, look at it? Which so really uh, yes, my view from word on the ground and from knowing that only about five percent of reactions are reported are that things probably are being underreported or being put put down to coincidence and not mm. being investigated fully um yeah it seems there's a lot of bias that's entering into that scenario so yeah. that you know i was talking to a man last week who is in hospital following his second jab and he is his life has changed he has got been diagnosed with Guillain-Barre and he basically can't use his arms and legs he was wanting to go overseas to be with his partner in another country 
and he did it so that he didn't want to take the jab he took it and now he can't go there because he's so yeah. paralyzed so you yeah. know and the, and i asked him i said is this being reported to calm oh, i don't think so i don't think anyone really you know they're trying to find all the other reasons yes, for every other reason why it's not related to vaccine they tested everything and everything else is fine you know so it's going to be difficult for them to pin it on anything else you know considering it yeah. happened like two or three days after his vaccine it's um yeah. it's just so wrong my question was is you know when is too much when is it too much like at what point will they say you know there's too many adverse reactions let's uh, stop this so this is um this is the can you see that yeah, so the potential, this is, the, this is what MedSafe uh, and all the information that people are given at the vaccine centres will say. These are the common side effects. Headache, fatigue, muscle aches, generally unwell, fever, chills, joint pain, nausea. These are common, usually mild, don't last long, won't stop you from having the second dose. So that's what doctors have been told. That's what the public's been told. That's what are the acceptable side effects. If we go to what the regulators knew might be uh, happening with these vaccines, it's quite a different lengthy list there mm. uh, of the things that, you know, Alia at least is hearing about uh, and some of the other doctors that I'm in communication with are seeing probably most, if not all of these things. Uh, so Guillain-Barre, that's the um, paralysis. And cephalomyelitis, all those first three or four there are all to do with inflammation of the brain and the brain linings. Convulsions and seizures, I think they're self-explanatory. Strokes, narcolepsy, cataplexy, anaphylaxis, so large numbers of anaphylaxis. I mean, I think some people have been saying five per million, but when you actually look at the numbers in the New Zealand database there, it works out to about 11 per million, mm. uh, per million doses. So that's presumably even more per people because some of those will be double dosed. Yes. Um, heart attacks, myocarditis, autoimmune disease. Well, how long does that take? Autoimmune disease doesn't always turn up straight away. That could be months down the track. Pregnancy mm. and birth outcomes, they're watching out for adverse things there. Uh, and the rest of that list. So there's quite a lot of um, other things that should be. So if you get any of those things after the vaccine, your doctor should be reporting it. Uh, but if your doctor's not, you can. You or somebody else can report it in their place. But it's better if a doctor does it because they'll have the batch number and the lot number and all the other details to fill in, you know, and, and put it in more technical terms. Um, and basically anything that comes following a vaccine, if you think it could yeah. be related, I mean, you just, it should be reported regardless, shouldn't it? Well, yes, and, and, and not just for the first week or two. I mean, it could be right. a month, it could be two months, it could be six months down the track, you know, all, you know, if you were doing super rigorous monitoring, you'd be recording all of those things. Hmm. Um, so, I mean, in the, the newspaper article it says in order to figure out if the vaccine has had a role in the event experts use rigorous methods to assess the causality well i've been trying to find out what are those rigorous methods and i've contacted calm i've contacted medsafe the coroner's office the college of gps imac uh, and trying to find out well what is actually done if somebody reports a death if somebody died i was thinking well maybe the vaccine is or isn't related i'm not sure i need to report it um what do they do? Will they do a post-mortem? What do they look for in the post-mortem? How do they decide? And I haven't been able to get a clear answer. So, I mean, if there's somebody out there listening that does know uh, what these rigorous methods are, then I'd love to find out. Mm. I mean, even on the, we don't need to go to this one, Ali, but on the yeah. MedSafe, one of the other web pages uh, there, it's got the question, how will MedSafe monitor COVID-19 vaccine safety? And then it says, this was in February, but again, it hasn't been updated. So you'd think if it had changed, they'd have updated it. It says MedSafe has not yet finalized all of the methods that we will use to monitor COVID-19 vaccine safety. However, we will base them on our usual safety monitoring methods as summarized below. 
So, I mean, they're inundated. They've got, you know, at least five times the normal amount of things. So I don't know how they're going to do that. But anyway, that's, that's only point number one. We better whip along. Point number two, okay. uh, no vaccines don't affect women's fertility. So, I mean, through, throughout this, I'm going to talk uh, or mention quite a bit the, um, the MedSafe data sheet for community. So community is the brand name of the Pfizer vaccine. Uh, and the MedSafe data sheet is what, um, well, it's what I use, and I presume other doctors use. It's uh, like if, you're, if you've got a medicine that you don't really know much about and you want to learn, you know, you want a quick summary of all the facts and all the up-to-date data, that's where I would go. I would look up the MedSafe data sheet for whatever medicine, mm. uh, and it should give you a summary of all the latest information about it. So that's when I'm referring to that, that's what I'm referring to um, here. So the newspaper article says there have been rumours that COVID-19 vaccines affect fertility, even though there is no evidence that that is the case. So there's two things. Absence of evidence is not the same as evidence of absence. Mm. So just it's very easy to say there is no evidence, and that could mean that nobody's looked, or it could mean that somebody's done a thorough search and found nothing. Um, so... It's not clear. I mean, I know they say it's been given to thousands of pregnant women, but I mean, that's not a randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trial looking at the outcomes with unvaccinated versus vaccinated and, and comparing the two. Mm. Um, so the MedSafe data sheet, uh, fertility, pregnancy, and lactation, the fertility bit says, in a combined fertility and developmental toxicity study, female rats were intramuscularly administered community prior to mating and during gestation. So it was a much bigger dose than a human would get, four full human doses of 30 micrograms each, spanning between pre-mating day 21, gestation day 20. Antibodies were present in the maternal animals from prior to mating to the end of the study. There were no vaccine-related effects on female fertility and pregnancy rate. So on the basis of that, I can reassure all my female patients, pre-pubertal and otherwise, that there are no problems with their future fertility. Personally, I don't feel comfortable saying that uh, and reassuring people. I mean, to me, there are a number of questions. There are numerous anecdotal reports of menstrual cycle disruption. So much Maybe, so that they've added it to their, um, their list of safety signals. Right. So somebody needs to be looking at that because the menstrual cycle is fairly important in fertility. Hmm. Uh, Pre-pubertal children, well, do we know what's going to be the outcome in five or ten years with them? You know, if you're giving a vaccine to somebody who hasn't gone through puberty, I mean, is it going to affect their puberty? Is it going to affect uh, anything? You know, this stuff's been around for just over a year. I think July last year they first started injecting the Pfizer-BioNTech into people. Uh, it's now October, so yeah, a year and three months. Uh, that doesn't tell us anything about long-term effects. Autoimmunity. Um, there was one study, a Japanese study, looking at where the lipid nanoparticles uh, went. So it wasn't the whole vaccine, it was the lipid nanoparticles ejected into rats, I think it was rats, um, and just seeing where it went in the body, where did those lipid nanoparticles go, and they appeared to be accumulating in the ovaries, among other tissues, uh, at 48 hours. So what does that mean? It might mean nothing, but it might mean something. And how do we know if we don't sort of study it for a bit longer? And then, yeah. I mean, males are still part of the fertility equation as well. So, what, you know, what's happening in males? Um, there's no mention of male fertility on that data sheet. Um, oh. So 
personally, I don't feel comfortable reassuring patients, um, you know, particularly those who have not yet had children and want to have children, that it's safe. Uh, I mean, it may turn out to be, but I think it's premature to be reassuring people of that. Um, right, no vaccines can't harm children. Well, so with deciding whether or not to have a vaccine, everyone needs to have a, well, ideally everyone should have an informed consent discussion with a person or a medical professional who knows them, who knows their history, who knows their philosophy, um, and can give them a risk-benefit assessment. So uh, the risk-benefit assessment in children is different to the risk-benefit assessment in adults. Children, although they're probably quite likely to catch COVID, are unlikely to be um, significantly ill with it uh, and highly, highly, highly unlikely to die from it. So there is very low risk from actually catching COVID-19 in children. Yes, they might transmit it. Yes, they might transmit it to adults. Um, but that doesn't mean we need to be vaccinating children to protect adults. You know, that, that's not what we should be doing. The adults should be protecting the children. Um, the, the vaccines, on the other hand, you know, they have known risks. So we know that myocarditis, the inflammation of the heart muscle, uh, is higher in young males, like significantly higher than the background rate. Um, and so a young, fit, healthy, 17, 18, 15, 20, uh, 30 year old male, um, you know, that's getting out of the children's side, but you know, all those young people that are otherwise healthy without underlying conditions, you know, they're at low risk from COVID-19 uh, and they're at higher risk from harm from the vaccine. So there's going to be, you know, there needs to be a, an individualized risk benefit assessment made. Um, and, uh, you know, that's the known risk. We don't know, there's a lot of unknown risks. There is no long-term safety data. The trials in children, so that MedSafe data sheet, if you look at that, um, Pfizer trials in children study 2,260 children. Uh, just over 1,000 of them got the actual vaccine. Of those 1,000, they've followed up 660 recipients between the ages of 12 and 15 for two months. Mm. Well, to me, that's not very much for me, again, for me as a doctor to be reassuring you that it's safe for your children. Uh, further down on that same data sheet, it says, uh, the safety evaluation and study C blah, 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 is ongoing, i.e. they're still studying whether or not it's safe in children. Well, personally, I'd want to know the outcome of that study before I gave it to my children, particularly if my child is not at, is not at high risk uh, from the actual disease. Uh, so to be putting it, at, you know, and this is 12 to 15 year olds. I mean, the next stage down is the five to 11 year olds. Well, mm. Uh, oh, I don't know. It just, it, it seems wrong to me. Yeah, well, I, well, I was reading up about that five to 11 year old study the other day. And you know, they haven't even used a, a control group in that study. They're just comparing the outcomes to the adults 16 to 24 year olds. It's, um, uh, well, there's you know, no, similarly, there's right, no control group. Seen, right, okay. Yeah. Right, well, so how are they going to know what the rates of all the other conditions that turn up are? Well, and how are they, like, so my question is with all of this, in the adult study, they had 40, 42,000 people or something in the, in the big trial. Yeah. And so half of those got the vaccine. Uh, even with that number of people in this massive trial that is meant to be, you know, gold standard kind of thing, yeah. we haven't rushed anything, um, they still haven't found, they didn't find any of the safety signals that if you go to MedSafe now and look at those safety signals list, yeah. they didn't yes, find any right. of those things. Yeah. So if you didn't find those things with 
say, 21,000 people in a vaccine arm of a study, how on earth are you going to find them in 660 kids? Yeah. Like, yes, and I haven't seen how, how many children are in that 5 to five to 11-year-old one. I think it was around 2,000. Right, okay. So again, you're not... broken into different age groups and different yeah. doses as well. So there were right. high, medium, low dose schedules in there. So each of the, you know, that, that reduces that number down quite a lot of yeah. them are only going to go with the lowest dose because then that's a tiny number of people that are children that were mm. at a Yeah. Mm. Yes. Well, look, I personally don't feel comfortable reassuring parents uh, and young people that this is safe for them. Mm. But that's my opinion. Uh, no, vaccines don't cause magnetism, number four. So I wasn't going to get into this one in, in detail because um, somebody has written a very interesting article and put that on the New Zealand doctor's website uh, to read. And so, uh, I mean, the categoric statement in the newspaper article, the vaccine does not and cannot cause you to become magnetic. Well, if patients are telling me that, you know, one of the things I was taught in med school um, again, is probably relevant to point number one as well, was, uh, you know, when you like to make a diagnosis, uh, you, the history, the history, the story that the person gives you, what they say, what the patient tells you, gives you the bulk of your diagnostic information. Then you examine them uh, and you may do a test. So when patients are coming, and I mean, uh, personally, I haven't seen this magnetism. I haven't asked patients, are you magnetic? And I haven't had anyone come and tell me. Uh, but some of the other doctors have, and certainly people are, are um, concerned about this. Uh, so, I mean, if I was, you know, I, I'd be curious if I had a patient that came and said, well, look, I'm magnetic now, I'd be thinking, well, that's weird. I wonder what that's all about. Uh, I wouldn't be telling them, no, that's impossible. You're not magnetic. It's just due to the sweat on your skin. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's more information on the, uh, on the doctor's thing about that. But certainly people in New Zealand have been reporting this. And I think it's something that deserves further investigation. Uh, and I think a true scientist would be curious and questioning uh, rather than dismissing it and saying it's not possible. Mm. Um, right, no natural, no, so number, myth number five, no natural remedies and immunity are not more effective against COVID-19. Well, that's a bit of a can of worms of a, of a statement. So uh, I, I'm not going to say that being healthy is going to stop you catching COVID. But what I will say is that if you're healthy and you have a, a good, well-functioning immune system, then you are much less likely to get severely unwell from COVID and you're much more likely to make a full recovery. Mm. And it's been shown, uh, I think, fairly conclusively that the people with comorbidities and particularly diabetes and obesity are the people that are much more likely to be adversely affected and end up in hospital um, with COVID-19. Uh, so I think there's definitely room to work on those things. Um, vitamin D, uh, in fact, doctors have been told about vitamin D. Now, it was just a small little article in our best practice uh, journal in February, uh, but it did say consider vitamin D and there's probably, it's not going to be harmful to make sure, particularly elderly patients and people that are, um, have darker skin or people that spend a lot of time indoors, uh, supplementing them with vitamin D. And again, particularly over the winter months uh, would be useful. So there is um, advice about that, but um, I'm not sure that the general public are getting uh, the message about vitamin D. But having said that, summer's coming, so my advice would be to get out in the sun uh, <laughs> to make sure your vitamin D levels are, are optimal for functioning of the immune system. And it doesn't hurt to think about the other vitamins, uh, you know, vitamin C particularly, but and the minerals, zinc, selenium, 
um, and just general eating food, you know, we could have, uh, you know, people have heard me before, will have <laughs> heard me rabbit on, but, you know, you, we could have done a whole lot uh, to enhance the population of the health over the last 18 months, mm -hmm. uh, the health of the population, sorry, um, over the last 18 months by, you know, optimizing people's nutrition and letting people out to get exercise rather than locking people away and letting people out in the sunshine rather than closing the beaches and closing the cycle paths. Uh, we could have improved our health yeah. um, significantly. Um, so natural immunity. Well, I've just, I, I haven't quite finished listening to it, but the recent interview or discussion between um, Robert Malone and Gert Vandenbosch speaking about um, immunity. And he was saying, or Gert, I think particularly uh, was saying, um, about how immunized people or vaccinated people have uh, very specific antibodies to the spike protein, whereas somebody who's had the natural infection will have much broader based immunity. And I think Peter McCullough said the same, uh, that the immunity from natural infection is, is broad based. Uh, and actually we need that in the population. If we're ever gonna get to some sort of population level of immunity, uh, we need the people who are currently unvaccinated actually to catch COVID-19 and have broad immunity and reduce the chances of um, variants uh, spreading. Right, they're describing the natural immunity, broad, robust, and durable. Um, but, you know, talking about natural immunity or vaccination leaves out the whole um, middle piece, which is treatment. Uh, you know, and this whole situation that we're in is based on the premise that there is no treatment for COVID-19. Mm. Um, and that's not the case at all. Um, I've listened. So, I mean, as a GP, the only uh, advice about treating COVID-19 that we've had is uh, in March last year, 2020, do not use hydroxychloroquine. And then in the last um, month or two, do not use ivermectin. Mm. We've not had any advice about this is what you do do, this is what you do use. And I've written to the College of GPs and said, well, look, in the absence of anything uh, from the College of GPs, I've been listening to overseas doctors describe how they treat COVID-19 and what they've been doing. And I've said it would be really great to hear from our MIQ doctors and find out, well, what are they actually treating um, the patients in MIQ with? Mm. Um, oh, yes, that's a good idea, was the reply. We'll get back to you in due course. So I'm waiting about that. So in the meantime, I've listened to, and I think that I've put the links on that um, sheet. I've listened to a webinar with Dr. Dee Mangan, who is a Kiwi doctor, but she had been working in Canada last year and she described what she did I mean it is aimed at a medical audience so it might be a bit technical or a bit boring if you're not uh, medical but um, if you're interested in what she did in Canada she categorized her patients into three groups uh, low risk people which were given a bit of advice and said look you'll be fine and we don't probably need to see you again medium risk people which were I think people over 50 or 60 or people with other um, some underlying health conditions and they were given a bit more education and advice and you know, come back if, if things get worse and you don't follow the expected pattern, which is to get better after um, several days. And then high-risk people, which were people with the significant comorbidities uh, or the very elderly, and they were given a pulse oximeter um, to, to wear at home. And they were checked in on a, in on the, well, the medical practice did a daily teleconsult ward round or a video consult ward round and checked in with the patient and got the oxygen sets, looked at the respiratory rate, checked about whether they had fevers, how they were feeling, symptoms and things, uh, monitor, and so monitored them daily if there was any suggestion that they were going downhill or their oxygen sets were below a certain level, uh, they were then um, transferred to hospital for hospital level treatment. But she said the bulk of her patients were managed in primary care. 
Uh, and then I've listened, so that's one of the web, webinar things you can look at, at with the link. And then the other one um, is Dr. Shankara Chetty, who was in South Africa. So I've listened to the whole first one of his, but he's done an updated second one, which I haven't had a chance to listen to yet. Um, really he, interesting, those. Yeah, yeah. So he's yeah. treated, uh, he's treated over four thousand patients in South, rural South Africa. Um, you know, and he said he had a range of patients. You know, wealthy patients, less well-off patients, uh, old people, young people. Um, I guess white people, brown people. I'm not sure. Um, but a whole variety of people, and over four thousand of them. And he said none of them needed hospital admission. None of them needed oxygen. Uh, most of them he managed. Uh, just with supportive care, uh, and then, but, but of people that um, took a turn for the worse on about day seven or eight, um, he determined or decided that what he was seeing there was a hypersensitivity reaction, and he was treating them with uh, antihistamines and steroids mm. at that stage. Um, so it can be treated in the community, and so we're locking down and doing all this, you know, when we can treat it, we don't actually need to be doing yeah. what we're doing we have uh, I mean, and then, and then yeah. peter mccullough i mean it, if people have listened to him he he's like so there's a south african doctor i don't think he particularly used the um the zinc and the vitamin c and the vitamin d and the other nutrient supplements from memory but I, there's another link there i think dr suholt swelt uh on on the piece of paper that um or the pdf that, so he did a webinar in January uh, talking about the different treatments that he used when he had people ringing up saying, I've got a positive COVID swab, what do I do? So he went through his list of treatments uh, in that other webinar. And so that again included vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, um, and some other supplements like N-acetylcysteine and quercetin. Uh, mm. So doctors aren't trained in nutrition. Doctors aren't trained about those supplements, uh, the, the NAC and the quercetin. Um, I mean, I don't know a whole lot about them. Naturopaths are more trained in, in those um, sort of areas, but th there are treatments, there's treatments. So um, it's not only natural, natural remedies or um, the vaccine. Hmm. Yeah, there's treatments in there. Yeah, and, and I think the most successful people seem to be the ones who are using a multi kind of... Uh, Multi-pronged multi approach. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah for, and tailored to the individual as well. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah, but I mean, the best thing to be doing now with COVID knocking on our door is to be optimizing your health by eating well, getting your sleep, getting your exercise so that, you know, you're in a good set of health for when you meet the virus, you know, whether you're vaccinated or not. I think um, getting yourself in as best shape as possible is important. Yeah, I think somebody was just asking who the um, South African Indian doctor was. He's Dr. Chetty. Yes, Chetty. Yeah. Uh, right, next one. No, so this is myth number six. Let's check I haven't missed anything out. Right, yeah, so myth number six. Um, no COVID vaccines can't alter your cellular DNA. So, well, I was curious about this because, again, it's, um, you know, a fairly definitive statement. No, the DNA is inside the nucleus. Nothing can get from the cytoplasm or the juicy bit of the cell into the nucleus. Um, but so I wondered, well, how do they know? How do they, how do, who knows where the messenger RNA goes? So once the vaccine's been injected into you, where does the messenger RNA go? Does it stay in your arm, as we've been told, or does it go around the body? And what happens to the spike protein once it's been made? Where does it go? Um, 
And so I've emailed both IMAC and MedSafe probably three weeks ago now asking, look, can you just point me in the direction of the studies that show what happens to the vaccine once it's injected? Where does it go? What happens to it? And I'm still waiting for a reply. No one's got back to me. Um, but again, when you go back to looking at, at the, uh, the MedSafe data sheet, the community data sheet, under pharmacokinetic properties, it says not applicable. So what does that mean? That nobody's looked or they don't know or they don't care? So Isn't I, oh, sorry. I thought it was to do with the, the general umbrella term of vaccine, is that they don't have to look at that. Um, well, yes, that's, that's possibly it. That, I have heard that um, previously. So that might be the case. But so pharmacodynamics is what the drug does to the body, how the, body, how the drug affects the body, how it has its uh, mechanism of action. Pharmacokinetic is what the body does to the drug. So how it's uh, distributed, how it's metabolized, how it's excreted. Uh, so that they're saying pharmacokinetic properties not applicable implies to me, well, nobody really knows what happens to it. So I'd be very happy if somebody does, does know uh, and can show me who studied where the, where the messenger RNA goes, where the spike protein goes. Hmm. So people are asking in the comments if they could send you some stuff. If you send it through to us, we can forward it to Alison. Yes, yes. Well, certainly if yeah. people know where it goes, I'm interested. I mean, I've seen the Japanese study that I mentioned before in the rats with the lipid nanoparticles. Mm. Uh, and then I've seen an, a nurse's study on about 11 to 13 nurses. And I think that was measuring the spike protein. And that was showing that the spike protein was present, present in the blood. I think those were female, nurse, you know, human nurses. Mm. Um, and that was present in the blood but that's the only two things i've sort of seen i haven't um seen detailed studies of you know how long it sticks around for or which organs and humans it goes to mm. um, right and so there is a substance actually in cells in the human body called reverse transcriptase which actually can take messenger rna uh, or RNA and convert it back into DNA. And there's a link to an interesting paper that I read with a scientist say, you know, pr proposing a, a possible pathway that that could happen. I mean, he said it's unlikely, but he said it's not impossible. There is a potential pathway that messenger RNA could get incorporated into somebody's DNA. Um, so again, saying it doesn't, or there is no evidence that it happens. I mean, that's, is it the same thing? There's no evidence because nobody's looked or somebody studied in detail can this messenger RNA get back into our DNA? Uh, and I mean, I don't personally think there's been enough time to actually do studies to figure out, um, you know, is, you know, if there's a potential pathway, has somebody looked at whether that pathway does happen or does occur? Mm, I remember last year, I think it was last year, uh, one of our experts had, was in a little video that I watched and she was saying that it wasn't possible because in order for that to happen, you would need to have a retrovirus present. And I thought, well, how do you know that there isn't something like that present? <laughs> yes. You know, that's a pretty big assumption. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, yes, and this reverse, I mean, I'm not, a, I'm not a microbiologist or I'm not a biochemist. I don't know all the details about that, but there is a substance called reverse transcriptase, which does do things backwards. Mm. Um, so I think the owner should be on them to prove that it doesn't rather yes, than on exactly. me to prove that it does. Mm. Uh, right, so no, the vaccine can't cause cancer. So, right, again, so the statement in that newspaper article, the vaccine cannot and does not cause cancer. Well, cancer doesn't sort of just, gen generally, it doesn't pop up overnight. It does take um, months or um, 
months or years even to develop from a, an abnormal cell mutation to a tumor that can be felt and diagnosed. Uh, so, you know, when it's only been around 18 months, I think it's premature to say that it doesn't or can't cause cancer. But when you look at the MedSafe data sheet, the community data sheet, once again, section 5.3, under genotoxicity and carcinogenicity. So genotoxicity, does it damage your DNA? Carcinogenicity, does it cause a, carcin a cancer, basically? Is it cancer-causing? Uh, and it says neither genotoxicity nor carcinogenicity studies were performed. The components of community, the lipids and the, so it's the fats and the messenger RNA, are not expected to be, are not expected to be damaging to your genes, but they haven't studied whether it can cause cancer or not. But no, it can't cause cancer. Yeah, it's, it's so such a statement. It's just, I mean, how can you say that? I just, I mean, I don't, like to me, the precautionary principle should apply. This is new, yeah. we should be super, like it's, we've never injected synthetic genetic material into people before and to be blanketly saying it's safe for everyone, let's inject it in everyone and know there's not gonna be any problems is to me, it's very premature. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, the, the article says that uh, to cause cancer, you'd need to interfere with the DNA or the regulations of, or the, the DNA that regulates cell division. Uh, so, I mean, yes, that's one way that cancer could be caused, but I mean, our bodies are making abnormal cells all the time and our immune systems are, uh, have cells that go around and mop up all our abnormal cells. So if your cell suddenly divides and it's got a dud copy of itself, the immune system's in there and getting rid of it quick smart. Mm -hmm. uh, if you altered those immune cells that are surveilling the, you know, that are constantly roaming around looking for abnormal cells, if you alter them, lower them, make them unfunctional, that could be a potential mechanism for causing cancer. Mm. And when I, I've listened to Dr. Ryan Cole, a pathologist uh, in America, speaking, um, so he's been working in a lab, I think doing a lot of testing of um, COVID samples, but he's also been, you know, he looks at cancer cells and other, other samples, and he's noticed a significant increase in uh, cancer diagnoses, particularly endometrial cancer, lining of the womb cancers uh, over the, well, since the vaccine rollout has started. Um, and he's also noticed uh, when he's looked at white blood counts or cell counts, a reduction in the numbers of certain populations of white cells that might be, um, you know, doing this uh, surveillance of uh, abnormal cells. And I mean, the fact that shingles, people are getting shingles. To me, you know, we've all, if everyone that's had chickenpox has got the chickenpox virus sitting latent in them and shingles will generally come out when your immunity is lowered, you yeah. know, whether that's lowered because of stress, whether that's lowered because of medication, whether that's lowered because of, of a different infection, uh, that's when shingles will come out. So why are shingles happening in the context of this vaccine? Yes. You know, yeah. is, is that lowering our immunity? Is that lowering the immune surveillance of whatever's in there? So, uh, I mean, to me, I think it's premature to say that the vaccine cannot and does not cause cancer. No, I was watching a video yesterday actually of another American doctor who had uh, tested the blood of one of his patients prior to getting the vaccine and then again afterwards and had measured the various different immune uh, cell you know, levels. Yeah. And you know, the good ones had gone down right. and the bad ones had gone up. And it was quite, you know, quite markedly so. And it would be really interesting to see that on a broader scale like you know actually oh, yes. studying this. Yes, yes. Why, why are we not studying this let's study it let's look <laughs> at it oh, and i mean the, the the other thing the risk management plan so i haven't again i haven't linked to that document but part of the original documents that pfizer must have had to give to medsafe was something called a risk management plan 
and if you look at that in table one under missing information, uh, it's got long-term safety data. You know, so they don't have any information about the long-term safety data, which would include whether or not cancer is potentially going to be caused. Mm. Anyway, next one. No, the vaccines aren't still experimental. Well, to me, this is a bit of semantics, really. Um, I mean, if, if the study was finished in December last year, as the article suggests, um, then that study was based on the outcome of 170 patients. Um, that's how they determined the 95% efficacy. And that's what uh, the, you know, that's what MedSafe has approved the vaccine on, on the outcome of 170 patients, I think eight of whom were in the placebo, no, eight of whom were in the vaccine group and got COVID and 162 of whom were in the placebo group and got COVID. And that's out of 40, well, 43,448 patients. Uh, so if that was the study in the experiment, Oh, sorry, um, that was me. <laughs> I'm just trying to. Uh, then it's, it's, and two months of follow up, a median of two months of follow up. So that study published in December, you know, it was pretty small. Now they are monitoring it. Uh, presumably, MedSafe's getting extra data and updates and such like, but it's hard to know exactly what they have been given. Um, but uh, on the first page of that study, it says in an ongoing multinational placebo controlled study. So the study is ongoing. And when you look at the clinical trials webpage, the clinical trials don't finish until May 2023. And I think even it said the primary outcome uh, was May 2023 and the secondary outcome was May 2023 when I last looked at it. Um, so, I mean, I think the average member of the public would say that if the clinical trial is ongoing, it's still experimental. Like to me, that study in December was interim data. It's data partway through the experiment. It's not the final outcome of the experiment, but it's semantics. I guess it sounds worse if it's experimental. Um, but I mean, the other thing about that and the experiment, the experiment with the 44,000 people is that the, of the 22 odd thousand in the placebo group, about 17,000 of them, have now been given the vaccine. So that placebo group, the unvaccinated people that we're following long-term for the long-term for the two or three years um, are now pretty small. There's only a few thousand of them. Uh, so it's gonna be difficult to interpret results from that. Uh, and it seems a little bit strange that, you know, I mean, the vaccine has been given to millions of people. That doesn't mean it's not still an experiment. Millions, billions of people. Um, and the, so a gold standard study is these long-term randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled studies. And that's what, you know, we can't use ivermectin because it hasn't undergone those. Uh, but we're allowed to use the vaccine, uh, even though it's still in the middle of one of these studies that's lost half its placebo group. So I think it's, well, personally, per, my personal feeling is that it is still experimental. Right, no vaccine, number nine, no vaccine companies aren't exempt from all liability. Uh, right, so the article said if they'd committed um, deceit or fraud, then they wouldn't be liable. But I think the more important things for the New Zealand public are, is it going to stop me catching COVID? Is it going to harm me? And for those two things, uh, Pfizer has no liability. 
Uh, and for those two important things, if there's no liability, is there any incentive to make it safe or effective? If you know that somebody else is going to pick up the bill and pick up the tab if, um, if something goes wrong. Uh, so ACC, uh, the, this is from the Herald the other day, so <laughs> how, how accurate it is. Uh, ACC has already received 382 claims for injury. So this is three or four, well, maybe three weeks ago. Uh, 144 of those have been accepted, which, I mean, to me, that seems like quite a lot. I thought ACC would not accept very many. Uh, and 163 are still in limbo. So, yeah, they've already got 382 claims. Um, I imagine there's going to be lots more, and that's us that's paying for that. So, you know, some of these injuries and things that we're hearing about, strokes, um, Guillain-Barre, you know, people potentially disabled long-term with those, you know, so is that going to be long-term ACC compensation? You know, um, I, I mean, these people need to have some sort of support, but that's us paying for that. That's not Pfizer paying for that. Uh, and how many more will there be? That's just my comments about that, I think. Yeah. We're, yeah, we've All right. heard from people in both of those camps. So people who have been denied, who've had very you know, right. quite serious uh, reactions and and are not being accepted by ACC left left to fend for themselves. Dry, right. Yeah. 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 Well, yes. Um, oh dear. Now <laughs> my screen's not moving on. Ah. Oh. Right. Do I need to stop sharing again? And maybe. Right. Try that again. Oh, share screen. All right. Now I can go. Right, okay, so point number 10, uh, no vaccines don't just reduce symptoms. So yes, some people pointed out that I hadn't got any um, references for that one. I was running out of steam by the point number 10. Um, but the thing is, that these six things that are mentioned in the newspaper article, I mean, they're all debatable. And the thing with this whole COVID thing is, is basically you can find studies to back up whatever you're trying to say. If you're trying to say that it's all the vaccinated people that are in hospital, there's a study or a report that says that. If you're trying to say that it's all the unvaccinated people, uh, in hospital and it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated you'll find studies and things to report that and so it's exhausting trying to uh, you know sift through the mountains of research and things um, but yeah reduced risk of infection I mean yes that's probably true that the vaccines uh, will do that but I mean if your risk was low or risk of a serious outcome was low to start with then it's hard to reduce it any further nine out of ten won't get symptoms well Maybe that's the case, maybe not. Again, it's very hard to know how they're testing people, how they're monitoring people, how they're counting all these things. Um, people may carry it. Uh, so yes, people might not have symptoms, but they might, you know, both vaccinated and unvaccinated may still have virus uh, in them that they could potentially be spreading and, sh and sharing. Very few vexed people become ill. Well, that, you know, that when you look at or when you hear reports of Israel and the UK where there's highly vaccinated populations and Gibraltar, um, a lot of the cases are in um, are in vaccinated people. And, you know, one of the things on that risk management plan at the start was the risk of antibody dependent enhancement, uh, which the, the, the vaccine companies recognized was a was a problem that the people that have been previously vaccinated may uh, find that when they actually encounter the coronavirus disease itself, they become more unwell. Mm. Um, so it's hard to know who to believe with these numbers. Prevents hospital overwhelm and protects healthcare workers. Well, see, that one's interesting. You know, from the doctors, that, the overseas doctors that I've listened to, a lot of the, the bulk of it was managed in primary care. And so what, you know, primary care has been 
shut out of a lot of this pandemic planning. Uh, and when we should have actually been bolstering primary care uh, and making sure that GPs had the resources and had the knowledge and had the wherewithal to treat patients so that we keep them out of hospitals. We seem to be focusing a lot on ventilators and ICUs and hospitals. Why not focus on primary care to make sure that the, the GPs have the pulse oximeters, have the knowledge of how to treat the patients and protect hospitals that way. And I mean, the other thing that worries me with the, you know, with all the healthcare workers being vaccinated is are they now going to be asymptomatic but still carrying the virus and spreading it? So an unvaccinated healthcare worker, presumably if they're going to get sick, they'll have some symptoms and they'll stay home. But if you're vaccinated um, and are asymptomatic, but you still um, got virus particles in you, you can be spreading it without knowing. So I'm not quite sure how that's going to pan out. Uh, decreased risk of transmission. Well, I'm never quite sure how they actually calculate that. Um, because the transmission of a virus is going to be related to uh, well, how much a person gets, but also the state of the recipient's immune system. You know, so I mean, how are you measuring that? I don't know. Mm. Um, and getting how to, you know, this getting vaccinated is going to get us out of the pandemic. Well, there's other ways to get out of the pandemic. You know, we could potentially stop testing. Uh, and then, then, then we, then our case numbers would go down significantly. Yeah, and we, yeah. you know, we could let doctors actually treat sick people. So if you're sick enough to need medical attention, go to your doctor and get treated, and then maybe be tested rather than testing everybody that has no symptoms and is unlikely to get sick. Um, and have could, therapeutics available. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, we can treat sick people. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we don't actually need to be locked down and shut up and hidden away and masked in everything like we are. We can actually focus on creating health. We can treat those that get unwell when they get unwell. We can let those that uh, have robust immune systems catch coronavirus and get natural immunity. Uh, and those that are, are particularly vulnerable could be, uh, well, I mean, presumably most of them have been vaccinated already, but if they're uh, um, still worried about catching the disease, then uh, they, they can shelter and, and keep it out of society while it goes through. I mean, a, a virus will go through a population. It's not going to be at high levels in a population for years on end. Mm. Uh, usually it'll go through a population in months, maybe a year, and then most people who are susceptible will get it. Uh, and, um, you know, then there'll, there'll be small pockets of people that are left and um, still susceptible over the subsequent years but that'll be small pockets the bulk of people will have um, had it so it's not like you have to I mean some of those great Barrington doctors and other doctors are saying well look if we uh, locked or you know if you, you sheltered the vulnerable people for several months uh, that would be enough to um, let the people that didn't mind catching it catch it and get immunity yeah. and then get on with life uh, you know, so there's, uh, and I mean, this is the thing. I mean, I maybe I'm happy to have a discussion about that. And there's been no discussion that there are any other ways apart from locking down and vaccinating. And perhaps we need to be talking about some of these other other ways of going about things. But yes, the fact that we can treat COVID-19, that it's treatable, most people aren't going to get particularly sick. And those that do can be treated, um, I think, needs some more discussion. Mm. Yeah, definitely does. Right, next. Oh dear. <laughs> is that your is that your last one or did you, you Well no, I've got more than I've got okay. some I mean that's all the myths done, but then I had a few other um things just to to say. 
Right. Uh, so I can't, I've stuck again. Maybe if I stop. Oh, this, so annoying. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> right, now I can go. Right, so I, I mean, I think this, this is an important um, slide because what I'm hearing is a lot of uh, business people, campground operators, festival and event organizers, politicians, uh, non-medical people all saying how great these vaccine passports are going to be, digital certificates, health passes. Um, yeah, we want them, bring them on. Yep, that'll be great. We'll be able to let people in. But I mean, I'm waiting for a doctor to describe exactly what this vaccine passport is actually going to tell us. And to me, I can't see a medical reason for it. If you showed me your vaccine passport, I'm not going to know whether you got a vaccine and you actually mounted an immune response uh, or not. I'm not going to know whether you got vaccinated and mounted an, an immune response and now it's waned and you are no longer immune. Uh, I'm not going to know whether you have some degree of immunity, but you've still got uh, coronavirus in your nasopharynx and are passing it on. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not going to tell me whether you've had COVID and you've got superior natural immunity. And it's not going to tell me whether you've got any other infectious disease. So in short, it's not going to tell me anything about your health. And I wouldn't feel any safer sitting in an airplane full of people with vaccine passports or people without vaccine passports. Mm. It makes no medical sense to me. Uh, when I think about them, it, it's going to tell me, I mean, it's, to me, it's going to demonstrate that you've been obedient and that you've complied with orders. Yes. Uh, it's not going to tell me anything about your health. And if it's not about health, then people actually need to think, what is it about? Mm. What will it be used for? And in Israel, you've got a vaccine passport, you've had your two jabs, you've got your passport, it's not valid now unless you get your third one. Yeah. It's and not so going to be valid before. until you get your fourth one. Mm. What else are you going to have? It's going to morph from a vaccine passport to a digital certificate. Are you going to have to be sterilized before you can get on your plane? Mm. Are you going to have to agree to be euthanized at 50 before you can live your life? What else is it going to be used for? So I would love for a medical person to explain what they think they're going to be able to tell from a vaccine passport. Uh, but please think carefully about whether you really want one and whether you support businesses that are going to use them. And that's, you know, for everybody too. Those questions yes. for the people who are choosing to take the vaccine, is this really what you want? Is it, do, do we really want to be going down this road of segregating society? Well, and not for medical reasons. Like it's not... Yeah. There's no really good reason it's, to do that. It's not, it's not going to make you any safer on an aeroplane. It's not going to make you mm. any safer in a campground or at a festival. No. To know that people have had a vaccine. You don't know anything about their immune status underneath that vaccine. Mm. Right. So this one um, was for the mums particularly, the mothers, the mothers-to-be, and the future mothers of New Zealand who, are, who haven't made a decision yet, who are wondering... Should I, shouldn't I, do I want to get this vaccine? Is it the right thing to do? And you're hearing from auntie and grandma, yes, you must get it. You're hearing from your employer, no, you mustn't. You're hearing from your husband, no, you shouldn't. You're hearing from someone, yes, you should. No, you shouldn't. Yes, you should. No, you shouldn't. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're not sure and you're hearing from too much and you don't know what to do, what I want to say is that you actually already know the answer. The answer is inside of you. And if you listen to and you trust your maternal instinct, then you will know what to do. And that's not just to the mothers, actually. That's to everybody. 
If you've got a little voice inside you or you've got a loud voice screaming at you, whatever it's saying, listen to it. Don't let it be overridden. Our politicians and our health professionals are good at overriding your instincts, but your instincts are there for a reason. Right, so that was my comment there. Right, I'm just swapping my screen. There was a um, there was some a slideshow that had something to do with Pacific Island people, and they were talking about that, weren't they? Trying to play down the the yes um, people's intuition, mother's intuition. Well, yes, mother's and just general instinct. If your instinct's telling you something, listen to that instinct. It's, it's there for a reason. Yeah. Uh, just, so just some other thoughts that I've been pondering on. Um, so why have we got, I mean, there was something from the College of GPs the other day saying, you know, medical decisions should be, you should go and talk to your doctor about medical decisions, not listen to social media and not sort of take any notice of all the chat and nonsense on social media, go and talk to your doctor. But actually, who's telling us what to do? We've got sports celebrities, we've got politicians, we've got business people, we've got radio hosts. We've got celebrities all giving medical advice and all weighing in on what should be private and personal medical decisions. I mean, there's a double standard here. Don't listen to social media, but listen to your politician telling you that it's safe and, effect safe and effective. Listen to your sports star telling you it's safe and effective. Listen to some of the radio hosts saying it's mm -hmm. safe and effective. Mm -hmm. I mean, ideally, you talk to your doctor and you have an honest discussion about your personal risks and benefits which includes your personal philosophy of health and respects your decisions and your, you know, whether your decision comes from a scientific background that, that you can explain in rational terms or whether your decision comes just from, it doesn't feel right to me. I don't want to do it or I do want to do it. Um, you know, doctors should be respecting those mm. Uh, well having those discussions the thing is it's separated it's done at these big vaccination clinics where the people don't know you uh, they don't know anything about you they never see you again and you yeah, go back you to the doctor know. with your side effect and the doctor doesn't know you've been vaccinated I mean they probably do actually because it's in your thing but they might not twig because they haven't done it themselves it's not being part of their care and so there's the disconnect between having the vaccine and, and then seeing the adverse reaction I don't know whether that's by design or by default um Anyway, that was a slightly off topic there. Uh, then the, the next one there, doctors for vaccination. So, I mean, you've probably all seen the ads in the newspaper with all the doctors signing it. And um, and there's certainly been a push in the medical uh, profession to get doctors to stand up and say, we support vaccination. Yes, we're totally on board. We think the government's got the right plan. So um, I think their page closes on the 14th of August. And I'm sure that me mentioning it now is going to push the numbers up. But anyway, when I last looked, there were about 6,000 doctors had eagerly and voluntarily signed that uh, we stand up for vaccination. But there are 18,000 registered uh, doctors with practicing certificates in New Zealand. And I think there's 28,000 doctors on the medical council list. So 6,000 out of 18,000 is only a third of doctors. Uh, so where does that leave the other two third of doctors, I wonder? I dare say a chunk of them are now going to go and hurry hurriedly sign it, but <laughs> uh, it'll be interesting to see how many um, do actually sign it and what the other third think. Um, yeah, right. I had a look at that document. 
yeah. and all the if you go through all the references they're all ministry of health ministry of health right. ministry of health they don't have any science in there to back up these statements it's all just sort of fluff on the ministry of health website well yeah oh well we'll see i mean i think in hawks bay there's going to be uh, all the gps are going to be um in the newspaper this weekend all the hospital doctors were in the in the newspaper not all of them there were some omissions uh last weekend and then the, yeah this weekend it's the gps i don't know if that's happening around the country but in hawks bay that happened um okay. I, so in my next pondering there why aren't the medical staff taking off their ppe ppe if the vaccine works and we're going to trust the vaccine and we're actually going to open up when we get to a certain number shouldn't we be modeling shouldn't doctors medical staff be modeling that we trust the vaccine that it's working and let's get rid of the masks and the ppe and let's show that the vaccine works mm. anyway yeah it just seems odd it's... that we're carrying on with the, all these rules and restrictions and how long are we going to do that are we going to be fully vaccinated to 90 percent and still have to wear ppe and scan and sign and contact trace and all the other things Yes, um, it doesn't, you know, there's sort of saying one thing and doing another thing. Uh, and I mean, Australia, uh, why are they building new quarantine facilities? Mm. You know, what are they expecting? Like uh, once the, I mean, the virus, they get vaccinated, the virus gets through the remaining community that isn't vaccinated, then it'll be over and done with in a year or so or less or whenever. Uh, what do you need new quarantine facilities for? You know, and there's talk here, as far as I've heard as well, you know, don't we need better MIQ facilities? Mm. Uh, are we expecting another virus, I wonder? Uh, and then what is, what is health? Where does it come from? This stuff? Yes. What was that? <laughs> is it the Marburg virus? Well, yes, yes, I've heard Marburg being mentioned. <sighs> so what is health? What really is health? And I mean, health and life is not sort of sitting around being scared of dying from a viral infection. And health doesn't come from a pill bottle or a vaccine needle. Health comes from human interaction, social connection, real food, good quality sleep, fresh air, exercise, sunshine. It doesn't come from a hospital. It doesn't come from your doctor. It doesn't come from an experimental medication. Um, there are my final thoughts. We got to the end. <laughs> So regardless of everything else, when I get back to why I'm here and what I'm saying this, regardless of your belief about a vaccine, the safety or effectiveness of it, uh, uh, my feeling is a person needs to be fully informed of the benefits, risks, uncertainties and alternatives and free to decide for themselves whether they want a medical procedure. There is no place in medicine for forcing or coercing people to submit to a medical procedure. And that's why I'm here, trying to reinforce the beliefs of those who know this. Yeah. Right, Thank that's you. the end. <laughs> um, I've been watching the, uh, the comments zip by, and there's so many people I'm really thankful for what you're doing tonight, Alison. It's been great. I'll just open up the comments. Oh, yes, yeah, so I, I could see some of them some of the time, but I can't see them all the time. But There we go. It's open now, so we can have full chat going. Right, so shall I stop screen sharing and then I can yeah, be with you? Yeah, Then we can be together again. <laughs> <laughs> I found my way back again. I know where to look from now on. <laughs> oh, that was really wonderful. Thank you so much. And I mean, there's, there was heaps, tons of questions in the comments, but well, yes, we can't yes, really get uh... tonight. And 
for, for people who are wanting the references, if you haven't, if you've come in from another pathway like Telegram or Facebook or something like that, um, we did send out an email this afternoon that included the, the download link to Alison's uh, reference list. So go and check your inbox if you haven't seen it. And um, if, if you're not on the email list, it's time to get on it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think it's 20 what past is, nine. So 20 past nine. All right. Okay. okay. So we probably let them know. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's lovely. It was really good. And, and I think people really appreciated it. If you can look at all the comments that are going yeah, by I'm now. Wasn't, there wasn't going um, so fast. I can hardly see them. But yes, I can. Yeah. Get, thank get you, get everyone. Drift, 20, so. Yeah. Yeah. 2,700 people online tonight. So that was, right. that was great audience. So yeah, so like we said, I think we've got something coming up on Sunday and then another another um, webinar next Tuesday. So tune in then. Oh, and I forgot to tell you that we've got um, Gert Vandenbosch is coming on next week too. So that's oh, quite that's exciting. exciting. Yeah, yeah, so keep an eye out for that and um, sign yourself up and tell your friends and we will catch you all later. So thank you. Thank you, Alison. Well, th and well thank you guys. You know, thank you guys for the platform because, you know, as I said before, you know, I'm a doctor. I'm not somebody who's out there marketing myself or putting myself out in the public arena. And, you know, it's, yes, it's not my usual happy place <laughs> in front of the screen talking to lots of people. But, you know, you guys make it possible. And, you know, you've got such a neat platform uh, going on. I really appreciate what you guys are doing and, you know, really feeling for you being stuck in Auckland and locked down and unable to see each other and, you know, working so hard. It's, uh, you're amazing, the three of you. Awesome. Well, and thank crazy. you, it's audience, for turning up. You know, yes. thank you for spending your evening listening to me rabbiting on. <laughs> oh it's lovely. It's really, it's a, it's a best, we're on the best team, I think, you know, yeah. really everybody, all the, all the people that are on board with making this as good as it is. Um, we, we definitely have got the, we're up here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you, everyone. And we'll catch right. you next time. See you. Yes. Cool. Bye, everyone. Thanks, Alia. Bye.